So, good evening, and uh, thank you for showing up. Uh, my name is David Lloyds, and I'm indeed in the Atomic and Laser Physics sub-department here in Oxford. And what I thought I'd spend just the next 10 minutes talking to you about is some of the research that we do, particularly with respect to X-ray lasers and how in Oxford we're developing these light sources and also working towards applications of using them to look at the very small microscopic world. Uh, and I'll just give a little teaser here of an image I show, which is uh, an X-ray image of a common housefly that was taken in an experiment my research group performed recently. And really, by the end of this talk, I want to be able to have it firmly impressed in your mind that we can actually look at things far smaller than houseflies, and we can do it on very, very short timescales as well. So I thought I'd begin with something that you may well be familiar with already, and that is the electromagnetic spectrum. And I guess you're all familiar with the fact with that... Uh, it's the visible light part of this spectrum that uh, allows you to see me at, at this very moment. Um, what's more, though, is these words, which may be familiar with you from other things as well, form part, of a form part of this spectrum. And so, in that sense, the visible light is here, but there's far, far more going on, all of it invisible to our eyes. Now, all of these things are electromagnetic waves, and they all travel at the same speed in a vacuum. But the way that they differ is in the wavelength. And what I mean about the wavelength is the peak-to-peak -peak separation, so how far are two peaks apart. So if we take the visible part, which we're all familiar with, and we move to the left of this diagram, we go into the infrared, and we're going to hear more about that later in, in Ruth's talk, and also microwaves and radio waves. And what's more, these peaks are getting further apart, the kind of natural length scale that they correspond to gets bigger as well, from butterflies to buildings. Now, what we're interested in, interested in in atomic and laser physics is to the right of this spectrum. So we start to bring these peaks closer together and we get to shorter and smaller wavelengths and we go through the ultraviolet to the X-ray. And here, the separation between our peaks is starting to approach the size of molecules and atoms. And it naturally makes sense that if these, these are the kind of things that we're interested in looking at, very, very small objects, then we need short wavelengths to do that. And I'll come back to that later. So some familiar applications of X-rays in modern life are perhaps the medical X-ray. And I show on the left here the world's very first medical X-ray. And this was taken way, way back in the 19th century by one of the pioneers of X-ray research, William Röntgen. And what he did here is he developed a source of X-rays and he naturally thought, well, who can I test this on? And so he got his wife into the laboratory and said, hold your hand there. <laughs> Don't move. And for 15 minutes, he blasted her hand with his primitive x-rays. But you can see, even in this very early image, the bone structure and also her, her wedding ring. And you can really start to understand the use of x-rays. And this must have been a very exciting result to see below the flesh for the first time without having to dissect someone. Another application of x-rays, which may be less favorable with, is uh, the airport security scanner. And uh, we can see here that it's very, very useful for going beneath the surface of the bag, for instance, and seeing objects hidden within, knives and guns being a, an example shown here. And really, what I want to emphasize about x-rays in general is they have some properties that are very useful. And one of those is that they have a short wavelength. And as I mentioned, this will allow us eventually, if we build our experiments well enough, to look at very small objects. And the other property of x-rays that is generally useful is they're penetrative which means they can go below the surface and really look at things that are going on underneath. And uh, you know, the use in medical medical field is uh, obvious to everyone. And we can see here where this gentleman has suffered quite 
a horrific injury, but no doubt the x-ray would help the doctor to diagnose this and uh, work out the severity of it and the treatment plan. However, it must be said that the medical x-rays which, which we're all familiar with are, are somewhat limited in, in, the, med in the scientific sense and uh, really one of the problems that we encounter when we try to use medical x-rays for anything other than the examples I show here is the fact that medical x-rays really just give out x-rays in all directions and what we'd really like is something that's quite confined to have our energy in a very small space and also the x-rays just, just blast on for some given period of time. We'd really like our x-rays to be quite short. What we really want is something with the properties of a laser beam and I've, I've been showing this one to you already and you guess I'm familiar with it but laser beams have the capability of being very short in pulse duration and you might ask why is this important to us? Well if we have ambitions of really viewing very small objects, things like viruses and bacteria, then they move around on very, very small length scales, and that's fine. But it also transpires that these changes occur on very, very short time scales. And the sort of time scales I'm talking about are femtoseconds. Now to give an idea of how short a time period a femtosecond is, if you consider the comparison of one meter to the distance of Jupiter, that's the same kind of change we go from going from a femtosecond to one second. It's a truly very, very small unit of time and it's the kind of period which small objects like viruses and bacteria change on. The other property that we're interested in is something called coherence and I won't really dwell on this for too much but essentially it allows us to take our light source and form a beam and to concentrate all of our energy into a small space. So naturally we would like to combine the properties of x-rays and the properties of lasers into one device. And conveniently, these are called x-ray lasers. And so once we can harness these properties, we can reap these kind of benefits. And ultimately, one of the things we'd be interested in is, as I mentioned before, is looking at very small objects on very short timescales. And so this necessitated us to build these things. How do we go about building an x-ray laser? And one approach which was pioneered in California and America is something that's known as an X-ray free electron laser. Now this is a truly gargantuan machine, a huge experiment. It's many, many kilometers long. And what scientists in America have done, they've taken electrons and accelerated them to very, very high speeds. And then by applying magnetic fields in opposing directions, they can make the electrons wiggle. And this is the term that scientists use, these electrons are wiggling. And as they wiggle, they emit x-rays and it transpires that these x-rays are actually the brightest that mankind has ever produced. Absolutely incredible results from this machine. And also the x-rays are short in their pulse duration and they're coherent. And so they're just the right perfect for these kind of experiments that we really, we really want to utilise. However, there's a big problem. This comes at a very expensive cost. This machine for a long time was the only one in the world and it cost $500 million to build. And uh, this is a big problem for a lot of people. It really limits the number of people who can use it and the kind of scale and the imagination of experiments that we might like to do. So one of our research directions here in Oxford is to try and take the properties of a machine of this size and shrink it down to something that's not one or two kilometres, but one or two metres, something that could fit on this bench. And to do this, we use a technique which is known as high harmonic generation. And I'll show a picture of the lab that I work in here, just around the corner, in fact. And what we do with this technique is we take a laser that you can buy commercially, it's emitting pulses in the infrared, and we try and convert those wavelengths down to the X-ray regime. So you can imagine we start, if we go back to my spectrum picture, on the left with our, with our laser pulses and try and bring them all the way to the right of our spectrum. 
And this technique is, is well known and uh, we've been helping develop it for, for some time now in Oxford. Uh, one of the problems of it, it's not very efficient. So we're not as bright, we don't have as many x-rays as one of these machines. But that's something that we're trying to address at the moment with our research. However, on the upside, these pulses are very short, some of the shortest ever generated by mankind. And they're also coherent as well. So they're, they're nearly good enough. And we're showing they probably are good enough to do these kind of experiments where we look at very small objects. And obviously the benefit for this, well, it's less than a million pounds to put this together, which may seem like a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of things, it's 500 times cheaper than this at least. And then, so let's say that we have our X-ray source and uh, we wish to look at something small, then we may construct a very simple imaging arrangement. So we can take our X-rays and we can irradiate some kind of sample and our X-rays are scattered off. And then let's say we take a lens to collect all that light and focus it down to form an image. This would, this would work in the visible light, just hunky-dory, and lots of people do it all the time. This is how a microscope works, for instance. However, when it comes to x-rays, we encounter a big problem. We can't build lenses for x-rays. There are just no materials that are capable of being transparent to x-rays that also allow them to be bent inwards the same way that a lens does. And this is a big problem for many, many years for scientists. They had these sources of x-rays, but they just couldn't apply them correctly because they didn't have the lenses structures to put into their experiments. However, after time, scientists realised that there was a way around this, a very clever solution to this problem. They thought, well, how about we just run our experiments without a lens, and then we get a computer to do the work for us. And it has been shown that you can use a computer with certain algorithms, you just run that computer for an amount of time, and it can do exactly the same job as a lens. And this is called lensless imaging, and it's proved to be very successful. So I thought I'd show some examples of this type of X-ray imaging that have been uh, performed before. And so this is what would happen if you run your experiment without a lens. You just get some kind of scatter pattern on your, your camera chip. And you think, well, that's not very interesting. We can't really learn much from this. However, if we start running our computer algorithms on it and performing the function of a lens, we can, in fact, draw out an image from this very same data and see our structure of our material. Now, to give you an idea about how small this object was that was imaged, this distance here is two micrometers. And to put that into context, one of your hairs from your head has a diameter, a width, of 40 micrometers. This is far, far smaller than what you can see with your eyes. And we're really picking up fine structure on this, much smaller than that two micrometer scale. And so what this experiment showed was indeed we can use our x-rays to image very, very small objects. Now you might ask yourself, well, we have this, we have this experimental arrangement that can look at very small things. What can we look at? And it turns out that two micrometers is about the size of an E. coli bacteria. And that's something that the scientists went quickly on to do. And so they took something, in this case, it was a Mimi virus, which is of scientific interest to the biology community. And they passed them in front of their x-rays in the imaging arrangement like I've described. And they were able, after running the algorithm, to recover this structural information of the Mimi virus, not only its shape, but also the internal structure as well. And it turns out that this is something really interesting in terms of evolution, because one of the theories of the origins of life comes from the fact that there can be virophages, I think they believe they're called, living inside these kind of viruses. Uh, and so really, there's no other kind of experimental arrangement that's capable of looking at very small objects like viruses, looking at their internal structure and doing it in their live state. And so really, this is where X-ray lasers are at the moment. They are being applied to these problems in a wide variety of areas, materials and biology. 
and showing some really extraordinary results. So to round up, uh, X-rays form part of the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum, which is far beyond anything that we can see with our eyes. However, they have a number of properties that are very useful to us. They are penetrative, let us look beyond, object, beyond the surface of objects. And uh, in Oxford, we're developing X-ray lasers that are being put into practice and application of imaging experiments so that we may look at the microscopic world on very short time and length scales. So yeah, thank you for your time.